If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Politicians love giving speeches about the Victorian engineers who built our country, and I felt it's time to give a bit of presence to the Georgians in the 18th century, and that was the time that Britain really changed. That was Julian Glover talking to us about the Georgian engineer Thomas Telford. He's given all the privileges, cottages and carriages, and uh, he teaches her Urdu, which again is fascinating. I mean, the Queen is in her 70s by now. And that was Shrabani Basu discussing Queen Victoria's Indian servant. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of February 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week we begin with an interview with Julian Glover, a journalist, author and speechwriter, whose latest book is Man of Iron, a biography of the Georgian engineer Thomas Telford. I caught up with Julian a little while back to find out more about a pivotal figure in the development of modern Britain. And I began by asking him what had first drawn him to Telford's life story. I think Thomas Telford is one of the great people of British history and one of those who's a bit underappreciated. We often hear about the, the fantastic Victorian engineers. I, w- I worked in politics and politicians love giving speeches about the Victorian engineers who built our country. And I felt 
it's time to give a bit of presence to the Georgians in the 18th century. And that was the time that Britain really changed. That was when the Industrial Revolution came in. We went from a farming country to an urban one. We built transport. The people who did that were fascinating. And Telford was right at the heart of it. And his story, as I began to explore it, I decided was well worth chasing up. Why do you think it is that our politicians or various other people nowadays celebrate the Victorian engineers more than Georgians like Telford? The Victorians were amazing, of course, the, the, the 1830s onwards, did, did incredible things. I, I think we remember them partly because of photographs, so we can we can see what Brunel looked like. There's that great image of him with the chains in the background and the big hat and the cigar. and There, there was a sort of visual strength to that period. Also, there was the power of steam and the greatness of railways, and everybody seems to love railways, and everybody wants to wants to know more about trains and just the other day we saw a steam train running in the north of England and thousands and thousands of people turned out. So there's a love of some of what they produced. And the age that came before, the age of stagecoaches, of of highwaymen, of of those great inns in, in towns where people would gallop in at night and get their meals and then rush off again into the darkness, that seems a more distant age. It's a bit harder to grip and it hasn't been sold to people in the same way. So, so perhaps we forget what came before railways and how modern our country really was, even by the time Queen Victoria became became queen. And for those who may not know a great deal about Telford, can you just briefly give us an idea of what his main achievements were? The challenge with Thomas Telford is he did everything. He he was one of those people who who never seemed to stop work. He didn't really have a home. He he travelled around the country all the time. He had schemes all over the place. He he built roads. He built bridges. He built canals. He did work a bit on railways, but he also built ports. He built a lot of St Catherine's Dock in London. He was an architect. He built churches. He built all sorts of things. And 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 so there isn't a single Telford object that you can point to and say was the great moment of his life. And that makes him quite hard to get hold of in one way, quite hard to understand. You know, who was this person who seemed so so restless? But he was born in Scotland in 1757, and he started as a shepherd boy up on the hills. He was trained as a stonemason as a, as a teenager, just as an apprentice working on little local village schemes. And then he burst out of that and built his life. And, and by the end of his life, he was the, the dominant kind of head of civil engineering in Britain, uh, beginning to be replaced by some of the younger people, but a man who worked in iron, knew about bridges, was the person right at the end of his life before he died. The Prime Minister, the Duke of Wellington, asked him to go and fix Dover Harbour. It was the very final thing he did. So he built himself up to be the centre of a great profession, building a great country. You mentioned his background. How common would it have been for somebody from such lowly origins to go on to achieve such great things at this time? It was an age, the 18th century, when you could either fail completely and end in poverty and starvation, or you could make it. And so it wasn't unusual for people, and it certainly wasn't unusual for Scots, to make it in their world, to come down to London, to get going, to to start things off, and and, and to show by the success of your own efforts it was worth employing you and, and you could rise up. So there were other engineers like him who, who came from backgrounds. There were people who, who did all sorts of things who weren't grand to start. It, there's a great argument about the 18th century as to whether it was a, a mobile society where people could end up you know, in the, in the House of Lords with a great title, but having started off as a, a, a sort of banker or something even more humble as a road engineer, or whether it was a fixed society. But it was at mobile at times, and, and Telford wasn't the only person who rose up. And everybody loved that kind of good luck story. It was part of his charm, part of his popularity, that when he went to to dinners in London, people would say, and you know, he began as a shepherd. It made him special, but it didn't totally make him stand out. That was one of the things I love about the 18th century. All sorts of stuff did happen. It was a mobile society. 
You mentioned how he had a very broad range of projects and achievements, but did he have a kind of single aim or mission to his career? He did have a single aim in the second part of his career. I mean, he had many careers, really. As a stonemason, he just wanted to get on. He wanted to start his own building company, which he never managed to do. As an architect, as a county surveyor for Shropshire, where he, he sort of came of age in, in, in the 1880s and 1890s, he wanted to be respected. He wanted to be able to talk to the county elite at an equal level. He wanted to get away a bit from his background. And then when he became an engineer in the 1790s, it sort of happened to him almost by chance. And then after that into the 19th century, he had one very clear aim and he wrote about it a lot. And it's fascinating to see because I think it's the aim of infrastructure and engineering today as well. And that was to build the stuff that links the country together and creates a growing economy. He really had this vision of a uniting kingdom. And Britain became the United Kingdom at the very start of the 19th century. The constitution changed, the House of Commons in Ireland was abolished, and everybody had to go to Westminster. And he sort of saw himself as the man who plugged all this together. He worked a lot during the Napoleonic Wars, when armies were out fighting in France and, and, and winning and losing and crashing through Spain. And he said, you know, my building is my way of subjugating kingdoms. He saw this as a similar thing. So there was a very big vision. And it is the vision that you know, at its best, infrastructure can do today as well. Something like Crossrail in London, which I was down visiting just last week, or or possibly High Speed 2. Those are things to join places together. They're not just individual schemes or little little bypasses. They've got a big national picture, and he had that too. And that's what makes him fascinating, because I think he was the first engineer in Britain who really saw things like that. And his career coincides quite closely to the start of the Industrial Revolution in Britain. How important was he to that process? It was certainly important to him. I mean, of course, any phrase like industrial revolution, you'll find people who dispute, did it really exist? Or was it a revolution? Or was it industrial? Fun of history is to pick pick things to pieces and challenge them. But let's assume it did exist, because certainly where I'm talking to you from Derbyshire, we have all the Arkwright mills and all sorts of things happened around here, which, which, were, which were quite they were genuinely revolutionary and changed the world. Telford was important in some ways to supporting it. He did help improve the transport system, which certainly some of his canals in Shropshire and the, the, the great aqueduct at uh, Pontcasilte in, in, in Wales did play a role in the Industrial Revolution. They carried coal to Shropshire. They, they helped fuel the furnaces of Coalbrookdale. But I think it was more the other way around, really, that actually the technology of the Industrial Revolution and the ability to have people who knew how to do things like James Watt, there, there were people out there who assisted him. The Shropshire Ironmasters taught him how to use iron in revolutionary ways. And he learned from that, and then he went and deployed it. And not all his schemes had anything to do with industry. And that's one of the charms of his life. It's what I love about him, is he built things in rural places, in beautiful places. So he built a 1,000 miles of road across the Scottish Highland to open that up. That wasn't industrial at all. He built extraordinary fishing ports, on the, particularly on the east coast of Scotland. They, they weren't really industrial, although they were helping feed the cities. And he built this great road and improved it from London to Shrewsbury, and then built the road right through the, the heart of Snowdonia with extraordinary bridges and the Menai Bridge linking to Anglesey. And that, although it used the skills of the Industrial Revolution, it was really a political road. It was a road to link Ireland and London, Dublin and London, to allow MPs from Dublin to get to London. It never really had an industrial purpose. So it's important to see the Industrial Revolution as part of our changing country, but it wasn't the whole reason everything changed. Just like today, industry is part of our lives, but it's not every bit of what we do all the time. It's a more complex picture. And did Telford have much impact outside of Britain? He was famous and he was admired 
and Britain was famous and admired. We were the place, we were the go-to country at the time. A bit like today, people say China is extraordinary. You should see what they're doing in Shanghai. That was Britain. We built extraordinary things and, and, and other countries admired it and wanted to come and see. So in France, Telford was famous and he corresponded with French engineers. He didn't ever go to France. He talked about doing so, but never quite got round to it. He was certainly famous in Sweden, where he was asked by the elite Swedish government, the aristocracy, Baron von Platten, wrote in this letter in halting English. It's a, it's a comic sort of letter. You can still see it today, saying, please come and, and fix and build a canal across the centre of Sweden. And he did go to Sweden twice, and this canal was built, and it's still in use. And if you see it, it looks just like a, a British big canal, the Caledonian Canal, Telford also built in Scotland. They're very similar. And he was a little bit known beyond that. He was consulted, certainly, by project engineers in Canada, British North America, as it was. He was uh, asked by people in India to consult on building a, a causeway from Bombay. And he wrote back saying he thought it was perfectly practical and this is how you do it. And by the way, you could put a water pipe along it too if you if you want to, to make it more useful. He did a bit, we don't really know what, in Poland, conquered kingdom at the time, of course, and a bit maybe even in Russia. He appears to have been given some diamonds by the Russians as a reward, but nobody quite knows where they are anymore. So he certainly had had fame and a reputation outside Britain, but the bulk of his work was in the UK, Scotland, Wales and England. Now we've talked a, a bit about his career so far, but what can you tell us about his actual personality? He was a very mysterious man. He was friendly. He was great fun. He told anecdotes. If he liked you, if he was on your side... I think he was the best of company, and people who met him who'd not seen him before, within three or four minutes, he could bring them in. He, he knew how to charm people. He knew how to charm politicians. He could sort of bluff good humour. So that, so he was certainly fun. He had a sort of rough, rough face, shaggy hair, not that interested in dress, big body, kind of engaging individual, very impressive individual, very dominant person. As to what he actually thought himself and what he was like internally, it's quite hard to know. He didn't do any of the conventional things. He became a little bit rich. He wasn't that interested in money, but he had plenty of, of money. But he didn't really buy a house until his uh, mid-60s. He never had a family. He never married. He, he, he always kept on the move. He did have a small number of close friends, many of whom were slightly odd themselves. They had, he had sort of tricksy, tricksy difficult people. He didn't, he didn't hang out with the, the glamorous set or buy a country estate or go fox hunting or go to parties and dance or do any of the things that some people do when they become rich. He was always a little bit out of an outsider. And some of his early letters, and there's a fascinating series of letters to his best friend from school, William and Andrew Little. William Little lasted longer. But the two of them, he wrote to them both. And it's extraordinary revealing a man on the make. He describes how he wants to wants to take on the elite, how he wants to, to get people on his side, how he wants to get them around to back his plans. As though he's a schemer, there's, a, there's an inside drive that he doesn't want everyone to know about, but he reveals in these letters. And it certainly worked because he succeeded. Whether he kept that feeling up all his life, we don't quite know, because he stopped writing to Andrew Little after he died in 1803. Uh, he wrote occasionally to William Little, and we see those letters. But always, I think he wanted to show, I'm as good as you are, I can get on, I can make it. And he worked so hard that he did. I'm speaking to you now from Bristol. One of the most interesting incidents in Telford's life revolves around the building of the Clifton Suspension Bridge, which is only a mile or two from here. Could you tell us a little bit more about that episode? So one of the great icons of 
Isambard Kingdom Brunel's life is is Bristol, the Bristol Bridge and the railway to Bristol, the Great Western Railway, and of course the SS Great Britain. So Bristol is Brunel's town. So it's always a bit a bit alarming to to challenge any of the Brunel uh, myth. But the Clifton Bridge, which spans the gorge and is a beautiful sort of scene in, in the centre of the city, it's always said to be Brunel Bridge. It isn't really. It's a much more complex story. There was a lot of money left in the 18th century to build a bridge across the gorge by by, by a kind of good-hearted Bristol citizen. And it built up and finally got to enough money that the city thought it was worth having a go at getting someone to build it. So in the late 1820s, they had a competition to do so. And they asked Telford, who was by that point the grand old man of engineering, to chair the competition and judge the prizes as, as, as he would today. And Telford perhaps was getting a little grumpy and obsessed by this point of his life because he sort of dismissed all of the entries, possibly rightly, and awarded the prize to himself, having entered his own design. And it was a horrible design. It was a sort of gothic towers coming out the bottom of the gorge, holding up a suspension bridge, a real mess of different things. It's lucky it wasn't built. Uh, The city fathers for about a week said, gosh, what a lovely design. We're so pleased. And then finally, good sense overcame them. And they said, well, thank you very much, but no. And the competition was rerun, chaired by a rather impressive Cornish MP who was a great expert on bridge building, who helped Telford earlier in his career. And so Telford was kind of sent away with his tail between his legs. He, he sort of thought of re-entering, but they didn't let him. And the young Brunel, who was in Bristol, recovering from a disaster building the Thames Tunnel, which his father, Mark Brunel, was in charge of uh, in London, he, he entered with his own design, at least one design, I think the evidence is that more of it was done by his father than anybody likes to admit. Certainly his father's diary suggests he worked quite hard on the design and he was he was at least as much an expert at bridge building as, as Isambard Kingdom Brunel at that point. And he came second in the competition, but they pushed their way through and he got that overturned and came first and was awarded the, the prize. And so a bit of work did begin on Brunel's bridge. The The great piers at either side started to be built. And then they ran out of money in the 1830s, and Brunel was off doing other things like railways and ships by that point. So it wasn't until Brunel's death that they actually came back and finished the bridge. It took an awfully long time. So when we think infrastructure is slow today, sometimes it was slow then too. And they used chains from Mark Brunel's Hungerford Bridge, which was in London. And they adapted the winning design and put the bridge up as a sort of memorial. But it isn't a Brunel Bridge, and it's not a Telford Bridge, but it is where they had their battle. Now, earlier on, you spoke about the coming of the railway age, which right at the end of Telford's career. How did he react to this huge change in the landscape and what did it mean for his legacy? It must always be hard when something comes along to sort of suggest that everything you've done in your whole life is a mistake. And it's a bit like working in newspapers and then people coming along and telling you the internet is going to replace everything. It's kind of hard to believe it and hard to change. So as a young man, as a young engineer... Telford was was really up for new new technology. He did work on canals, but in the 1790s and early 1800s in Shropshire, he wrote about, you know, I think railways of the future, at least in some practical uses, not everything. Those railways, of course, were, were horse-drawn. They were still quite big networks being built. They were, the railways were around for a long time, but they were coming in and some bits of canal weren't built and railways replaced it. So it, the Ellesmere Canal, which Telford worked on in, in, in Shropshire in Wales, the section on beyond his great aqueduct, which was going to cross up towards Liverpool, was never built, and that was a, a horse-drawn railway instead. So he knew the value of it, and he surveyed some early railways. So it's a mistake to see Telford as a total opponent of railways. But once 
the craze for railways began and steam engines started locomotion on, on, on rails. Telford kind of took against it. He bridled at it. He, he tried to prove that railways weren't that efficient at carrying cargo, that canals were better at carrying heavy weights. And he did all sorts of scientific tests and spent evenings with sort of channels of water pulling boats through to see how much better they could be designed. He was really trying to get canals to keep going. And of course, railway technology was racing ahead. There was the Stockton to Darlington Railway, and then soon after the Liverpool to Manchester Railway was being built. And it was being built with government funds, and Telford was the person who was asked to judge whether it should get the funding. So he was in a a tricky position. And he went up to that railway and uh, surveyed it with, with the engineer, George Stevenson. And there was a real tension between them. And Telford wrote grumpily, I don't know how this thing's ever going to work. And they complained he was biased. And they got the money anyway, and it did open, and it's now celebrated as as the first great intercity railway in the world, even though it ran over a cabinet minister on day one. And at that point, he was really out of the picture that future of railways was was going to be private money, big expansion, lots of people involved, lots of experimentation, Brunel building his broad gauge railway that turned out to be a mistake. And other people, often Telford's pupils, because he trained a lot of engineers, and they all went off and worked on railways too. And he he sort of was, I think he knew he was left behind. He didn't try too hard to get involved. He attempted right at the end of his life to prove that steam could work on roads. So he had a steam bus, which he hired, and tried to drive from London to Birmingham on his great road to Birmingham to show that it was just as good as the railway that was being built alongside. But it was all a nonsense because trains were better. More people could use them. They could go faster. And his technology went out of date. But he wasn't an enemy of railways. I think he knew they would come. He was just a bit sad. Uh, had he been younger, he probably would have piled in and built them himself. Having written this book about Telford, would you consider him to be Britain's greatest ever civil engineer? I guess it isn't a competition, really. So he was a great engineer and a great man, and, and he lived in a great time. His life story is, is as interesting as his engineering. Uh, I think he was the greatest because he was really the first with a big national picture. Of course, there are other engineers before. There was William Rennie, and there was the early 18th century, and some fantastic engineers too. But I think he was the one who founded the profession. He he trained young people formally. He led, he was the first president of the Institution of Civil Engineers, which is still still there in London, heart of the global engineering profession. And uh, there's the room with Telford's official portrait still there. He was the person who gave birth to the future. Isambard Kingdom Brunel was definitely a better person at PR, and he was fantastic at doing some daring and fun things. And they're extraordinary today and you know the london to bristol railway is is beautiful and beautifully built and some of the ships were were, were definitely extraordinary but he was shaped by his father he had other influences too so i would say telford was the man who worked longer came from nowhere started things and left an extraordinary legacy and so to that extent i at least would argue he was the greatest civil engineer but i don't mind if other people want to challenge that how much of telford's legacy can people see today around britain one of the brilliant things about Telford is you can go out and see it. And it was a fun thing writing this book. And I described some of it in the book. It's not just history. It's not a sort of thing that happened, which you can't see any trace of. It's all there if you go and look. I mean, just yesterday, I was driving along the A5 in North Wales, which is the Telford Road that he built. Most of it is still the same alignment. And you can see the walls that he built. You can see the toll booths, the toll gates, the the, the little set-asides inside the walls every every 100 yards or so, which were to keep the material to maintain the road. It's all there. If you slow down a bit and just have a look, everything's there. His greatest bridges are all still in use. He built a series of fantastic iron bridges of different designs in different parts of the country, and nearly everyone is is still there. They're not, not all carrying cars, though some are. 
but that you can walk across them. In the Scotland, there's only one of Telford's iron bridges that's gone, and that went in the 19th century when a ship hit it. So it's there. So Catherine's dock taken a lot of battering from the Second World War and the terrible development in the 1960s and 1970s that flattened most of the warehouses, which Telford didn't design, but he did design the docks, and they're, and they're pretty much still there. Yachts are in them today. The Caledonian Canal across the top of Scotland, people sail through that. The Gotha Canal in Sweden is is open and busy. So it's not a piece of lost history. It's not a wasted piece of history. It's a living thing. And you can go and look at it. And it's, it really helps to know what you're seeing, to suddenly think, you know, Telford did that, Telford did this. Of course, he had all his team with him. He didn't build every bit by hand himself, but he was the presiding genius. You could see places where the Ellesmere Canal and the A5 are next to each other, and you could drive along the road and you could look at the boats on the canal. And that was the Britain Telford built, and it's still there if you go and look for it. And having visited so many of these places that Telford built, do you have a personal favourite? I think the bridges are the most amazing because they're clearly different to everything that came before, the iron bridges in particular. He built some wonderful stone ones, but they're they're less revolutionary. So the, the Menai Bridge with its chains, the first really big suspension bridge in the world, there was one that opened a year before, although the Menai was being built before the other one. Uh, that's still there and you can go across it and it's spectacular. I think the uh, Ponkathilte Aqueduct in, in, in Wales, which is this sort of stream in the sky, Sir Walter Scott called it, the, the writer when he went to visit, and it carries barges high above the River Dee in the most beautiful location. And that's amazing. You still see people clinging onto the railings as they walk over because they're frightened by it. It's still one of those things that's dramatic, even in our own age when we have so much big infrastructure everywhere. And then I think the Highland Roads because they take you to the most extraordinary, remote, beautiful locations. And they were built with such skill and great design. Were Telford around today in Britain in the 21st century, what do you think he might be able to do for the country's infrastructure? The first thing he'd do is be able to talk politicians into paying for lots of it and then get building. And then he'd go back to the politicians and say, actually, we need a bit more money. And by that point, they would have committed to building it, so they'd have to pay. So he's good at getting things going. He's good at lifting your eyes raising raising the hopes, um, driving forward nation-changing projects. Whether he'd be involved in roads, I don't know. He probably would be uh, interested in some of the modern railway stuff. He'd definitely want to go and see Crossrail. But I think what he would do is take our road network and say, I'm quite shocked that much of the road network you're using today is the turnpike network and my roads that were built over 200 years ago. They've just been tarmacked, but they haven't had much other improvement. Of course, there are motorways in some places. But he'd, he'd want to think about how roads operated in the future. And it's something I'm working on now. I'm running a, uh, the Wolfson Economics Prize asking for better ideas on better roads. And I think Telford would think we've got a new kind of technology for cars, electric technology, autonomous vehicles. Something's going to be different. How do I get involved in that? Let's, let's think about roads. He was known, at least by his friend, the poet laureate Robert Southey, as the Colossus of Roads. And I think he'd be very proud to see that roads still matter and he'd want to make them better for the future. That was Julian Glover. Man of Iron, Thomas Telford and the Building of Britain is out now in the UK, published by Bloomsbury. And in the US, it's due to be released in March from the same publisher. And you can read an article by Julian in the February issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. This month's edition also includes articles on Oliver Cromwell, the East India Company, Robin Hood, and medieval romance, among other things. You can get hold of our February issue in all good news agents in the UK, 
and internationally in our many digital formats. And outside the UK, it might still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now, earlier in the year, some of our team headed over to India to launch our new magazine, BBC World Histories, at the Z Jaipur Literature Festival. The festival played host to talks from some of the world's leading historians, and we had a chance to grab some time with a number of them around their lectures. So here, speaking to our website assistant Ellie Cawthorn and our reviews editor Matt Elton, is the historian and journalist Shrabani Basu, discussing the relationship between Queen Victoria and her Indian attendant Abdul Karim. So how did Victoria and Abdul actually meet? Well, he was sent to her as a jubilee present for her golden jubilee. <laughs> when you are the queen, you can get a present like that. So this very handsome man wrapped up, you know, in a turban and wonderful clothes. Um, well, there are two of them who are sent. But Queen Victoria quickly has her eye on the tall and good-looking one rather than, as she describes, the short and smiling 
Mohammad Bakhsh, who is the other guy. Um, so he's very quickly handpicked. He rises, as I say, very rapidly. He's teaching her Urdu um, within a month. She says, Abdul, will you teach me Urdu because I want to speak the language? Um, she walks around with a little Hindustani journal, which he writes for her. Um, she keeps a diary for 13 years. And um, he then cooks her curries. So he takes her on a whole Indian journey. Um, Victoria was Empress of India, but she'd never visited India. And she loved this, you know, obviously. This is the jewel in the crown. And she really wanted to know more about India. She wanted to know about, um, you know, the, the festivals, the color, the monuments. And Kareem does this for her. He's, he's the tour guide. It's not the filtered, censored version from her administrators, you know, which is all dry. Um, this is the real thing. And she gets to sort of feel heat and dust of India through him. So what fascinates you about the relationship between Queen Victoria and Abdul? Well, the fact that Queen Victoria was so ahead of her time, because, uh, of course... You know, she always did reach out to commoners. We know that. We know she had a good relationship with John Brown. Um, that was also controversial. But John Brown had died by then. And uh, Abdul Karim is very different from John Brown because, A, of course, he's from India. He's also he's a servant. He comes in as a servant. He's actually a clerk in Agra jail. But very quickly, he sort of crosses that threshold and he becomes her closest confidant. She promotes him to become her Indian secretary. So he becomes, he's no longer a servant. He quickly becomes part of her household. He's given all the privileges, cottages and carriages. And uh, he teaches her Urdu, which again is fascinating. I mean, the queen is in her 70s by now. And for 13 years, she learns Urdu. Hardly anybody knows that she could read and write Urdu uh, right till the end. So do you think it was that kind of exotic element to Kareem that made him appeal to Victoria so much? Absolutely. It was complete exotica. I mean, initially, she writes detailed notes about how they should dress. And it's like she is dressing dolls. And as a, as a child, she loved dressing dolls. So this is actually continuing. And, uh, you know, she matches their puggeries, their turbans with their clothes, what they should wear. This is the empress, you know. She is the queen. She should be doing all this. But she loves it. She is actually writing detailed notes, detailed instructions. She wants them to be warm in Scotland. She designs their tweeds Indian style <laughs> takes a keen interest in everything um, make sure that they get their food that they can pray on time it's the first time you have Indians actually you know living their servants and they had chickens running around Windsor Castle because they would kill them cook it themselves so they had halal meat so it was a whole new world, a whole change of atmosphere at Windsor after these guys. <laughs> so how did Abdul and the other Indian um, members of staff find living in the UK? Well, for them it was like Wonderland, <laughs> you know. They, they came, initially it was just the two of them. And then as soon as he was promoted, she was one short. So then she said she wanted more Indian servants. When you're the queen, you get more Indian servants. So then there was a whole... You know, there was a whole coterie of Indian servants all running around in turbans, all going with her to Europe uh, on her travels. They would, she would always be accompanied by all of them, drawing the attention of the media that, you know, what a waste these guys are. <laughs> but uh, they were there. They were like curiosities, really. Everybody came up to them, walked to them. They were curious. People were curious about them. I think they had a pretty good time. <laughs> and as so much in Victoria's life the personal became political because there was a lot of public reaction mm -hmm. to Abdul and Victoria's relationship with him. Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Oh, well, as I said, soon it became they became very close, and um, you can see the intimacy that comes out. She writes to him, you know, like three times a day, and you. Some of those letters, most of the letters were burned, but some survive in Windsor Castle. And she's like, I'm going to come and say goodnight to you. Will you come and say goodnight to me? <laughs> oh, and then she'll put two you know, crosses to sign off. This is the queen. And, or she'll say, I'm bringing my daughter. She would take everybody to his cottage. So my daughter, the Tsarina of Russia, everybody, you know, they would all have to go and have tea with the Munshi and his wife. And uh, she would love that. She loved showing off, you know, this is her Indian family, sort of. And of course, they were very close. I mean, this is why you have this huge... Everybody hated this relationship because she would confide in him. That was very clear. And she was confiding about, you know, her stress over her children, everything. And she was a lonely woman. So he crossed the... You know, he he was a human being. He came across to her as a human being, which is why she was so close to him. She writes, I miss him dearly when he goes on holiday. Uh, he means so much to me. So, you know, we can just read those lines so you say that everybody hated the relationship Mm -hmm. is it as simple as the fact that Abdul was Indian that people thought it was inappropriate Mm -hmm. well two things he was Indian and he was a commoner and he was getting too close everybody I mean he obviously had the Queen's ear so people are jealous so everybody's jealous anything that Abdul wants Abdul gets even her closest physician, he wanted a bigger room. He didn't get it, but Abdul got anything he wanted. He wanted a pay raise, he got it. His father was given a title in India. He was given land in India. So naturally, it, everybody is jealous. And to top it all, he's a common, he's not even an Indian prince, you know, with a regulatory string of pearls and, you know, jewelry. He's a commoner from Agra jail. It was too much to have this man as part of their household. So what impact did this have on Victoria's reputation? Well, she just took them all on. She would send them memos. <laughs> there was a threat of a strike once. So they all came and they said, if you take Abdul to the continent, we are not going to travel with him. So, and the staff, her household, literally sent this one emissary to say that we will go on strike. And Queen Victoria was sitting at her desk and when Lady, you know, Mrs. Phipps came and said this, she just let out a roar and threw everything on her table, everything down on the floor, everything came crashing. And she had a really cluttered table, photographs, mementos, diaries, notepads, everything on the floor. Poor Mrs. Phipps ran, crying. The strike did not happen. Everybody went to Europe. Abdul Karim had his carriage and he was mentioned in the Gazette. So it was, you know, Victoria and Abdul won household nil. (laughs) And what does this relationship tell us? and the reactions to it, tell us about Anglo-Indian relations at the time. Well, Victoria was very different from the, the rest of the administration. Her administration didn't like it, you know, that she is so close, she keeps making demands. She wants to give him land in Agra, which is way beyond what would be given to a servant, you know. So they said there was somebody in the mutiny who lost his arm and leg, and, you know, and he just got like this much and he wanted so much. So she's always clashing with the Viceroy, but he gives in. Everybody just gives in to Victoria. She then gets more and more into the politics of India, thanks to Abdul Karim. So he tells her about the position of Muslims who are a minority in India. She asks for, you know, he says they should have rights in the provincial assemblies. Immediately, Victoria writes to the viceroy, why they must have these rights. Uh, why can't, why are there riots in Agra? Why are they clashing? Why can't you change the dates of the Hindu festivals? And the Viceroy writes back, you know, it's like changing Christmas. You, you can't change the dates. So they are quite exasperated with her. 
So Abdul had a direct impact on British policy in India. I wouldn't say that, but she is writing to him and she's getting a lot of information from him and she's putting pressure because there, is, there are these riots and she talks about provincial assembly, something which is way, I mean, she's a constitutional monarch, but she's taking a keen interest in all this. And it's not even just Agra. She's looking at the Northeast and saying, we must be kind to the, they, they would depose these rulers. And she was always very sympathetic to the deposed ruler. She said, we must be kind to him. And, um, you know, so she does take an active interest, but they're not obliged to listen to her. She is a constitutional monarch. Um, you mentioned a minute ago the Indian mutiny of 1857. How did that impact on British attitudes to India during Victoria's reign? Well, after the mutiny of 1857, of course, it's then the era of the Raj because the East India Company is gone and it's the crown that is the head. But what happens is because the mutiny is seen to be led by the Muslims, so the Muslims were not in favour, you know, not favoured by the, by the British administration. But this is what's interesting is that after Abdul comes, Queen Victoria, and then she learns, first they think he, they're all Hindus. It doesn't, you know, she doesn't even know the difference. Then when he says he's a Muslim, and then she says that Muslims are the best friends of Britain, which, you know, I find that line <laughs> when you think of contemporary Britain and the world and everything. It's, it's quite amazing. She makes these statements and she said they are the mo our most loyal subjects. And she says this to the Prime Minister and the Viceroy and everybody else. So, yeah. What legacy does this story have for the history of the two nations' relationships as, as it went on? Mm -hmm. Well, um, the thing is, they tried to delete everything that Abdul, you know, they tried to delete Abdul from history. Her son, who then becomes Edward VII, hated Abdul Karim. And the day they have a funeral, by night he sends his wife, uh, Queen Alexandra, and his and Victoria's daughter, Victoria. And they are standing, Beatrice, and they are standing outside Karim's house. And they make a bonfire of all the letters. They burn everything that Victoria has sent. And this is one set of burnings. This goes on. Then Abdul is sent back. And it's not just him. Edward hates all the other Indians as well. They are all sent back. No more curries in the royal kitchens. No more turbans. No more, you know, no more fun and flavor. And even the Lady Churchill writes that suddenly the color has gone out of the court. It's become a very cold place. So it's a different era. So they do their best to get, you know, just eliminate him from the history books. They knew that Abdul Karim wanted to publish his memoirs. And the household, I have all that on record, that we must make sure this never happens. Uh, and then, of course, I found these memoirs in Karachi. <laughs> and so now they, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very satisfying that he wanted this published. And finally, I've used it in my book. So they are out there for everybody to see. active, systematic kind of process of making sure that none of this was allowed to continue in any way. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, the story is hardly known. So, and not just known in, in UK, it's, it wasn't known in India at all either. I went to Agra searching for his graves, trying to find his family. Family, of course, weren't there, but nobody had even heard of him. And it took, you know, local journalists, we searched through graveyards and we found it because it's a big, you know, there's a very decent mausoleum at the end of it when we did find it. He had a lot of titles given by Queen Victoria and they're all written on that grave. He was an important man, um, but, you know, he was just completely forgotten. And uh, biographers of Queen Victoria, obviously I read, and there's so many biographies, he's mentioned, and he's always mentioned as this really sort of dodgy character, <laughs> almost Rasputin-like, and, you know, who had an influence on the Queen, and, you know, it, 
when I did this story and I saw his writings and their relationship, read her journals, it's so obvious how, you know, there is so much affection between the two. So they just misread the whole situation. And, uh, well, at that time, they tried their best to get hold of him. You know, they tried to say he's an Afghan spy, that he's lying, that he's stolen. They tried every trick in the book to get him, and they couldn't. So it just shows they went to... So, as you said, um, after Victoria's death, um, he was sent back to India. What then became of him? Well, he actually died within eight years. And uh, I think he died just heartbroken. He was quite young. He was in his 40s. And the way he'd been insulted and sent back like a common thief almost. And his, you know, even the postcards were destroyed. Like they were Christmas cards. She used to write to him three times a day. They were all burnt. And that sort of humiliation is, is not easy. And when he died, they had another raid on his house in Agra. So his widow is howling. It's a terrible scene. And saying, we've given everything. And there was just some Christmas cards left. They took those as well. And then they went a third time. You know, because Edward was obsessed with the Bunshi. He hated him. And uh, he had reason to, because there were letters in which Queen Victoria writes to Edward and says, you have to be courteous to the Bunshi. You have to do this. And then she copies CC. <laughs> she sends a copy of the letter. I mean, of course, it's not CC, but she has sent the copy of the letter to Abdul. So, you know, it's like these two are just insulting her own son. So obviously he hated it. So, but that letter survived. Somehow it survived because I think Abdul kept a copy somewhere. However, I have, I have seen that letter. So it's quite, it's quite amusing. But there were two more raids. And then the viceroy said, this is now going to become quite politically dangerous. He was an important man and you can't keep raiding his house like this. So he asked... The viceroy wrote to the king and said, you can't do this, and it stopped. <laughs> How would you like people today to see this relationship and this individual? Well, I mean, Abdul was a bit of a rogue. <laughs> it's not that he was, you know, but he was doing what everybody else was doing. If He never asked to be sent there. He was sent there, and he was a climber. Of course he was, you know. He asked for favours. He got whatever he asked for. But everybody was asking for favours. Everybody wanted their relatives employed, if, you know, even the English even the Queen's surgeon did. So he was doing what everybody else was doing, except that he was, you know, he was Indian. And um, I think for me, at the heart of it is, um, I came out of it when I, you know, when I started the research on Victoria, she was always this very formidable character, which is what we all think she is. And I saw her as the person she was. And, you know, hats off to her. She got brownie points for standing up to all the Indians and really telling them off for their racism, telling off her household, telling off her family, that, and telling them openly that they were being racist in the way they behaved. You, they used to call the Indians the Black Brigade. <laughs> and so she said, you will not use this word. And they are there sort of in her memos. That was Shrabani Basu. Her book, Victorian Abdul, The True Story of the Queen's Closest Confidant is published by the History Press. And if you'd like to find out more about BBC World Histories, then you can do so at historyextra.com. And now it's time for the latest history news with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. A telephone used by Adolf Hitler during the Second World War has been sold at auction for US$240,000, approximately £195,000. The red Bakelite phone, which is engraved with Hitler's name, was sold at an auction in Maryland to a phone bidder whose identity has not been revealed. 
it's understood that Soviet soldiers gave the telephone to British officer Sir Ralph Rayner as a souvenir shortly after Germany surrendered. The phone was sold by Sir Ralph's son, Ranulf, who inherited the item. Officials from Alexander Historical Auctions in Chesapeake City said the phone was, quote, arguably the most destructive weapon of all time, which sent millions to their deaths. In other news, archaeologists have suggested that two men unearthed in a London plague burial ground may have been related by blood or marriage. The skeletons of the two men, believed to have been in their 40s, were found buried in a double grave apparently hand-in-hand, in identical positions with heads turned towards the right. Thought to have died in one of the bubonic plague epidemics that hit London in the years following 1348, the pair are two of 25 skeletons which were uncovered when archaeologists from Museum of London Archaeology excavated a small circular pit where a shaft was sunk for the crossrail tunnel on the edge of Charterhouse Square. Archaeologist Sam Friesenmeyer, who led the excavation, told The Guardian, One possible interpretation is that they were related in some way, for example by blood or marriage, though he added that since no trace of coffins or shrouds was found, the position of their arms could have been accidental. Research continues on the bones of the 25 individuals. Meanwhile, the new Museum of Free Derry in Northern Ireland has opened its doors to the public after a £2.4 million refurbishment and extension. Located in the city's bogside area, exhibitions at the museum include The People's Story of the Civil Rights Movement, The Battle of the Bogside, and the 30th of January 1972, a day which became known as Bloody Sunday after 13 civil rights marchers were shot dead in the city by the British Army. Museum manager Adrian Kerr told the BBC that it had been a long, hard road, but that it was, quote, worth the wait. OK, so that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the Reformation with Eamon Duffy. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.